can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the Green Dragon. Welcome to the Green Dragon Podcast, your weekly podcast about Lord of the Rings and Hobbit strategy battle game by Games Workshop. I'm Jeremy, all alone today, and I've got a question and answer episode because I couldn't be bothered thinking of ideas for the podcast. Luckily for me, we've got lots of questions and some really good ones, so I'll go through them as we speak. Some of the questions are not totally on topic, but I'm just going to answer every one the best I can, and if it's a really good question, I'll probably put some more detail into it. First question from Andrew is, if you could ask Tolkien three questions, what would you ask him? And he doesn't mean Christopher, he means J.R.R. Well, my first question, actually all my questions are going to be about the books, because straight out, I don't want to know what he has for breakfast or how he brushes his teeth or what he does with his hair. I'm going to go first of all and ask, what happened to the Blue Wizards? We know about three of the Histari, we don't know about the other two, so I'd like to know their Middle Earth names and I'd like to know what happened to them. My next one is again, what about the Entwives? What happened to those? I know there's a lot of theories going around, but I'd really like to know what he envisioned whether they died out, whether they went into the Shire, whether the Ents just forgot where they were. And my last one is, what's the deal with Tom Bombadil? I know he was your son's toy, but I don't really see how he fits into Middle-earth totally. Is he one of the Maya? Is he one of the... Oh, I can't even remember the name. Is he one of the, the gods? Not sure. So I'd like to know what the deal with is. And if he actually is part of the bigger lore, or he was just a bit of a character that was written early on and then left in, I'm not sure. Next question from Jack is, what is the meaning of life? Okay, 42, let's go for the Hitchhiker's Guide reference. Next one we have from Andrew, different Andrew here, Andrew Lemaire. In terms of army selection, would you go quality over quantity? Good question. At the moment, I think for a new player, quantity is more forgiving. So if you have lots of models, you can fill the spots. It's harder to outflank you. You've always got models where you want. Quality is a little bit harder to use, but can be devastating if you have good quality troops and heroes. Even an all-hero army can be very hard to pin down. At the moment, I've been playing a lot of high-quality heroes with low-quality troops. So I've done things like the Numenor, where you have a Lindell and a Sildor with Numenorian troops, which are pretty good. Um, I've been doing Lake Town, where we've got the Dwarves, I've got Legolas, I've got Tauriel, who are all great heroes, and then a bunch of Lake Town men. So I've would go for a mixture, honestly, but I think if I had to choose quality or quantity, I'll take quantity. Henry Kerr says, how does one decide on a painting scheme? Firstly, look at the movies. If you're not happy with the movies, you're going to have to go something different. We've seen some fantastic painting schemes in our scene lately. People are getting really creative, lots of different colours. Some people are using pastels, some people are using bright colours, some people are using very neutral colours. I would start experimenting choose a few colors put them down on a model and try them out try and go something unusual i know that there's lots of color theories but the bottom line is you have to paint what you like to look at so grab a few colors together try some different ones that are out there try some bright yellows and greens and reds maybe who knows probably not all together and then maybe try some neutrals some browns some grays some blacks maybe and see how you go i like to use maybe one bright color or maybe two on a piece and then have the rest quite neutral and quite dark just to highlight it out so i might do like a black and white scheme where i have the white standing out and the black quite dark or maybe a, a really light green with some neutral greens and browns throughout 
For me, I just choose whatever I'm feeling like at the time. I often look at my armies and say, well, I don't really have a purple army. Let's do something there. Or I don't really have a lot of green or I don't have a lot of blue and get something different. Because the problem with uh, some of my forces is that they can look pretty similar. I was playing an Osgiliath scenario where I had my orcs versus the Gondor. And at times it was hard to tell which is which because they both are essentially metal across the board. So if I had my time over again, I'd probably darken up the orcs a bit, make them more of a black armor like my Gundabad orcs. From Mardi Taha, we have, if you had the chance to redesign a miniature from the Lord of the Rings Hobbit range, which would it be and what changes would you make? The easy option here is to go for the ones where I don't actually like the pose or the sculpting, which are most of the high elf old heroes, so the elf twins, uh, Rumil, and some of the others there. But I'm going to go for something different that may be a little bit debatable. The Watcher in the Water is the model that I would pick to redesign. I really liked the original conversions from the White Dwarfs, where it was just the head and the tentacles, and I thought it was really good, and I liked it as a sea monster. The new one that they've got walking outside with the cricket legs, I guess, really doesn't... It doesn't sit right with me. I don't fancy it too much. I would like to see a redesign and have a different back end. Now, how would I do that? I'm not entirely sure about that. That's going to be a bit of a trick. I don't know that I'd have it as an obvious bug. I'd probably have it something smoother to go with the tentacles. I'd probably have maybe even just a like a cone at the end or something there. It runs the risks of it being obvious that it can't go on land, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it being a watcher in the water rather than a watcher that occasionally goes into the water. From Mason O'Neill, we have, What colours do you do for painting bases? Forest floor, open field, rocky mountain areas. I actually just grab whatever colours I've got on hand, to be honest, for bases. I think my theory is to just go for as many colours as I can on the bases. I use mainly neutral colours in the grounds. So for my browns, uh, I'll use probably some Rhinox hides, um, the whatever the bestial brown is now, the snakebite leather, and then some beige dry brush on it as a basic ground texture, which gives me some nice sort of rich brown earth up to through the ochre, through the, the beige. And for the greys, I'll probably go for a dark grey to a light grey. Don't ask me to name the colours. After that, I'll probably grab some of the washes, some of the earth ones. So there's a really nice green camouflage wash. There's a brown wash and um, I wish I knew the name. Agrax Earthshade, I think, is a brown one. The green one is something about camo. And I'll put those on. And then there's the Nuln Oil Black as well. And I might mix a little bit of that in and sort of get some detail there. I don't spend a huge amount of time on the painting of my bases usually, unless there's an actual detail on there, like a flag or a model, because most of the time I'm just trying to get a variety of colors wherever possible. Most of the things work. As people who have seen my bases would know, they're usually got a lot of textures and a lot of colors, and I'm very much subscribed to the more is better theory there. Andrew Hyju again says, why is Alinda 40 points more than Thorin? Now, this is a question that's been going around for a while, and it's become a little bit of a joke, because they were compared initially, because one, or well, they both do the heroic combat for free, and Thorin is substantially lower costed than that. This is the Thorin from the new Battle of Five Armies book. My weighing in on it is that they're both great heroes. Uh, I think Alindil is wonderful, and for the 180-odd points you pay for him fully kitted out, he really does the job. He's got really fast maneuverability. He can duel out most heroes. He can knock people down. His heroic combats tend to go off more reliably because of the knockdown. 
Thorin has got quite a bit of movement restriction. We're looking at a base move 5 compared to the Horse the Lindel base move 10. So you've got a lot less options to do with your heroics. It's still an amazing rule. Overall though, I think I think they're both fairly costed. Elindil can lead troops, so that's helpful for deployment. That's helpful to keep your numbers up. Thorin is definitely designed to work with the rest of the company in armor. So they rough they go out to a thousand points. So I think there's a bit of points manipulation there. But I guess to really answer the question, it's probably just different riders. Once things get to a high level, I don't know that the points are particularly accurate. I don't know they're accurate for lower levels either, to be honest. But I think they both do their job. And the bottom line is they both do a fantastic job for their respected armies. So why wouldn't you take them? Go ahead for it. The Alindu without the horse is not the best option in the world. The horse adds so much. So if anything, the horse should cost about 40 points and Alindu should be a bit less maybe. Jack Lowry, who I think I've had on before, has says, do dogs have brains? Yes, they do. Then we have Jack again. Is Jerkenbrand really a jerk? Now, this is the nickname that Erkenbrand's got at the moment because of the 2 plus courage horn. Uh, the answer is yes, absolutely. To take a 2 plus courage horn on Rohan is just despised. It's a really good option. I much preferred the older version, which was the one-turn banner for all the Rohan guys. I thought it, it was gave you a lot more choice of when to play it. I think it was more fun to do, and it had the potential to really botch up the Erkenbrand now, who we've talked about in a previous episode ages and ages ago, is particularly good value, but I don't think 2 plus Courage is really quite fair. I think it makes a huge game dis difference, and I don't see anything in his story that says that he makes everyone so much better with Courage. Sean Rosato says, what's the Arnold 100% bow rule? And he says that as a joke. Yes, I got that wrong before. I do know it now. It's pretty simple. You follow the normal rules for bows if you take the Arnor force, so that's 33%. Now, if you want to ignore that, you may by doing the following thing. You have all your ranges of Arnor in normal warbands that can be led by them. So there's some Arnor heroes that can. There's Halberad and uh, Avendui and some of the other ones. So you fill those with ranges. Then you need to take a Ranger of the North or Dunedain for every four ranges in your force. That's all. So the four ranges in your force. The... Rangers of the North and Dunedain are independent heroes, so they don't actually lead any. You've still got to fill out normal warbands with it. So it's a pretty simple rule. Just the bottom line is, for every four Rangers, you must have one or else you go over. And his real question is, how do I rate the Abrican Guard? Now, these are the quite large men with the big swords from the Harrod list. For both the models and the rules, I really do rate them. I think they offer something different, these big bodyguard models. The chop rule, which is basically the old version of the Burly, is really amazing. Anytime you can get increased strength or increased ability to wound without lowering your defense, you're doing really, really well. Now they can even faint, so you can get some really nice combos where you've got the African Guard at the front and then, say, the Serpent Guard with the Spears with Fight 4 at the back. Really impressive models. Now, I did take these to a tournament many, many years ago. And I absolutely, it's probably my worst result of the tournament that I've ever had, I think. I might have finished last or even second last, I'm not sure. But basically, it was in the old rules where you always started about 24 inches apart. I had a defense 4 horde, and I just played strength 2 archery after strength 2 archery after strength 2 archery. And I never really made it into combat. So that was a particularly bad day for me, but I didn't mind it because they were a nice looking army. Haven't taken them since, so I'd like to see them in the new force. But Harrod here in Melbourne is pretty much flavor of the month since the Masters tournament, so I think I'm going to let my Harrod rest for a little while and try and be a bit of a hipster and do other things. 
then we have Andrew Hydu again. Bending the law, how far is too far? Oh, this is a good question for me. I am very much one who likes to stick to the law wherever possible. I'm, I enjoy the games that tell a story. If the game doesn't tell a story, if I'm playing good versus good or evil versus evil or Elendil and Aragorn versus whomever, I will go straight into the game as a puzzle mode and I'll pretty much ignore the story and just go into playing the game to win. I prefer the scenario aspect where you can tell a story and then I can actually enjoy the other person winning as well and and say Aragorn doing a great job taking on a horde of Urukai scouts instead of Aragorn and his great 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 so on grandfather Elindil going and taking on whatever a Gundabad orc force. So I like the law to be as close as possible. Now I do know that there's going to be liberties there of course because there was a lot of things that weren't covered and a lot of the stuff that Games Workshops released has not been covered at all. So I'm okay as long as people have put an effort into it. Like I have no problem with someone using the Lake Town militia profiles as any kind of militia across Middle Earth and that's been something that people are working on at the moment. I think that's a great idea and it's a great way to do that. It could happen very realistically. So there's no hard and fast rules there. If someone does take a Lindil as an appropriate person, maybe I will, especially if they put effort into the conversion or the modeling. So it's one of those fluid ones. What I don't really like playing against, and this is my personal preference, of course, is the armies that are obviously just take the best from each list and smoosh them together. I don't actually think they're that effective, but I see it as a popular choice where you go and ally in, say, something strong from one list, a Mortar Troll Chieftain, with something strong from another list, with a shade, with this, with that. And I prefer to have the themed list where possible. Play how you want though, of course, and get find out what your opponent wants as well. So my group tends not to play that way, but I have no problem with groups that do. Joel Stuckey says, you should highlight the mention you got in GBHL. Uh, the episode was 64, the their asked questions, I think a speak, fr- speak friend and question segment. Look, thanks so much, guys, for mentioning us. It's great to know that we've found our way over the seas. Our listenership is nowhere near as big as theirs, so it's good to know that we're crossing a little bit. I really respect what they do. It's it's an amazing amount of work to put together these media podcasts and things, and there's no monetary reward for it. It's just purely to grow the hobby, and they've done a really great job. A lot of people who I've met recently who have just started have done so because of their videos on YouTube, so that's really good. Well done to those gentlemen. Okay, and his question is, how far is too far with painting bases? The goal here is to have realistic bases, but you could go other, the other direction and make them colourful, uniform, so your army stands out on the table. He's thinking purples, orange, yellows. I guess it depends if you want to make your model look like it's fighting on a portion of a battlefield or not. Now, a lot of people have different opinions on this. I'm definitely in the category of make your base look really good as a standalone piece. So I put lots of dead models on my bases, all kinds of things to make it look like an action scene. I've got friends who don't like that because they don't see why the dead orc has followed Lendl around all game or why there's always a shield at someone's foot. So I can see the difference there. Now, if you're going for, say, a bright yellow base or a bright red one to hold out for heroes, that will work as well. But it will make the game look a lot more like a board game, essentially, which is okay. A lot of people like that. It does make it probably easier to follow, but whatever, up to you. I've seen people do a nice mixture where they texture the top of the base, and then they, say, put gold rims for heroes and silver rims for troops or something along those lines. And I think that's a really good idea. So whatever you like, whatever helps the models stand out, go for it. Give it a try. It's your own models, so paint them however you like. 
John Crocker asks, what's your favorite part of playing interstate? The best part about playing interstate is just the people. It's going and finding groups of people, like-minded people, other places that you get to play against and meet. And it's fantastic to be able to play potentially five or six new players you haven't played before. That's the best part. When we go interstate, people treat us like kings in the Australian scene. It's really good. You go there and people really put themselves out. They give you accommodation. They give you uh, alcohol to drink. They give you a really warm welcome. So that's probably my favorite part of playing interstate. It's a really great way of doing it. It's costly, but it's amazing fun. Jack again comes back. Do you think the Lord of the Ring or Hobbit strategy battle game is really dying? I've been playing this game since 2001, since the first green box came out and I was playing Weathertop and those scenarios. And I've been told this many, many times throughout the last 15 years. It's dying, it's dead. The big one was after Return of the King, no one would play it again, it was all going to disappear. Then there was the time of the War of the Ring and that started to fade out and then there was the Hobbit and apparently it's dying again. It's not going to die unless we stop playing it. And I'm not going to stop playing it. I don't know about you guys, but I've got a room full of the models and they're not going to start gathering dust from under my watch. So I don't see the game dying. As long as you've got an opponent, it's not really dead. Yes, they'll become a stage where you don't have the models anymore or you can't buy them anymore. Hopefully you've got all your, the ones you want by then. You're actually going to have to play, pay a bit of a premium, I guess. But you still be able to play the game if you like it. The world's not going to disappear. The movies are still there. It's going to live on for a while after that. I'm definitely not with the, the naysayers on the internet that think it's going to die. Look, maybe Games Workshop stops selling in their stores. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I have the models that I need. Hopefully you guys do as well. But I think the community is strong enough that we'll keep going no matter what. Henry's actually Henry Kerr's got a nice comment about this one. He says that, uh, my answer, everything ends, but the people in this community will carry it on long after they stop producing models, which is a really good sentiment. And I agree with that one. Well done. Okay, I've got a few questions from Scott Field, and these are some good ones, so I need to grab my Moria book. First one he asks is, should I include a dragon into the Moria list or more numbers? If the dragon, what features are best to use? It depends how many numbers you've got and the, the points level there. In a Moria list, in general, you want to be outnumbering the opponent. Anything else is really nice. You don't really need to outnumber them 3 to 1, 4 to 1. So I would definitely spend some points on a dragon from about, let's say about... 700 points onwards is an arbitrary value. So about half the army into the dragon. Now, the options for the dragon that I like, and I'm going to put them in the order of my favorite, and I'll tell you how I play it first, and then I'll give some other options as well. So my favorite is fly. I am a person who values maneuverability over almost anything else in the game. Most of the time, you can win a game just by getting your models where you want them and having the opponent's models where you want them as well. So where the opponent doesn't want them. And fly helps you do that. To be able to move over the lines with that big base is amazing. To be able to threaten things like Reconnoiter or Domination or any of those is great. So fly is my number one. And for 50 points, it's great value. They're all 50 points, the upgrades, which I'm not so sure about. I think some of them are probably priced differently. But anyway, my next favorite is the Worm Tongue, And that's because he gets to use it without reducing his will store. So you've got some very useful spells. Transfix, Compel, Sap Will... Sapwell especially is good to, to start mitigating some of the, the enemy spellcasters. Compels a great power and Transfix is also really good. It's good insurance there and you can use it every turn of the game. So I really like Wormtongue. Then my next favorite is, now this is a tricky one to decide between the two. I love the, the damage potential of Breathe Fire 
And I think I will take that as my third one. It's He's got a bow, so you have to do a half move, which is a bit of a pain. But you've got the shot hits, you've got a strength 10 hit, and then, yeah, hits every model. So strength 10 hit across the board is really good. And then if they t- suffer a wound with the dragon's breath, they automatic they are automatically slain. This is a great way to move things like Ents or Eagles or... Um, if you're playing evil on evil trolls or mumaks or anything like that that doesn't have any fate, it's a really nice weapon. The problem is it takes your will. So you have to spend a point of will to do that. And you've got a two plus to shoot value, so you're probably going to shoot. But I I don't like spending the will because the will's so important for his survival. And then my last one, because I hardly ever take wounds on the dragon because the way I play him is tough and high. That's my least favorite because the way I play a dragon is the assassin. He goes around, he compels a hero, he dives into the flank, he does all kinds of things just to kill heroes, and then I don't particularly worry about troops or block up an army. Now, the other way to play the dragon, which I've seen, which is also good, is to use him as a roadblock. So you don't really bother with the fly, he just takes up a flank of your army, or maybe even the front. You give him the tough and hide, so he takes a long time to kill, and you just push him forward. You might even take another upgrade. You might take the Worm Tongue. You might take the Breathe Fire. Or you might just keep him at 300 points and just use him as a bit of a roadblock there. I tend to get better value after the Assassins because that's one thing the Moria don't do particularly well. They're okay at troops. Killing heroes, a dragon, it just really takes them to another level. So take the dragon, yes. Now, Scott then asks, are bats worth using? And the answer to this again is absolutely yes. The bats are fantastic because they can lower fight value and pretty much guarantee that you're going to win a fight. When you've got lots of attacks, which you shouldn't a Mario army, that's going to be brilliant. They've got the fly rule, which I love. The fight value of enemy models in base contact with them is halved, rounding fractions down. Now, if you're clever, you might be able to get in base contact with more than one model, even if you're not fighting it, which could be a bit clever. But they're great for getting traps. They're great for maneuvering. They're wonderful for things like reconnoiter. Travis and I once went to a 1,500-point doubles tournament in Adelaide where we both took, essentially, the mirror... Moria list, we took it all together. We had eight bat swarms, a dragon, and a drake, and we did really, really well. We absolutely dominated that one. People couldn't deal with the bat swarms. They were going and targeting all the enemy heroes and blocking them up so the goblins could kill them. The rumor got out that the bat swarms were why we were winning games, so people started shooting arrows at them, which is the worst way you can deal with bat swarms because they can absorb it quite well. We're taking a couple wounds on one and then rotating it to the back. We both reconnoitered at the same time of our bat swarms. They did a really fantastic job. I would take a bat swarm if you can. I think they're really good now. They're very much a reliable transfix, essentially, and they do a great job. With four wounds, they're pretty hard to get rid of. Watch out for cavalry, though. Cavalry can knock them down and make some real problems. Watch out for monsters throwing them through lines as well. And then Scott also says, How do I best utilize Moria goblins with their low fight value? Okay, there's a couple things you can do here. One is you can try and mitigate the low fight value, and this is things like put a shade with them so the enemies are rolling one minus, make sure you've got the drum nearby to increase them, maybe even put high fight spearmen. I think there's an orc upgrade with the necromancer. But what I prefer to do is not worry about that too much. Make sure you've got lots of attacks in every combat. So you will lose some combats, but when you win, you will kill. So if I'm throwing three dice and you're throwing one, Good chance I'm going to win the fight anyway, even though I have lower fight. And when I do, I'm going to cause a lot more damage than you. So I actually wouldn't worry about it. I like models with weaknesses like that. So low fight or maybe low defense or something else, low courage. Because you usually get either really good value on them or you get to be able to take a lot of them. So, well, that's probably about the same thing. Anyway, I really like that. I wouldn't worry too much about it. 
you've got lots of support in the Goblin Army. So make up for it by taking some really good support. Maybe some Cave Trolls, maybe a Drum, maybe the Bat Swarms or the Wag Marauders. There's so many good things in a in a Moria list. You guys are base defense 5 with the shields and that is really good. It's quite underrated. To be able to just shield and get the extra attacks is great. You've got the spear supports if you need them. Your archers are great at fighting and then you can kill a hero's horse or something at a at a pinch. They're a really tough army to play against. Henry Kerr comes back again and says, what other characters from the Lord of the Rings universe should have a model or sh should other eras have a set of models? If so, which one? Well, the first age should have a set of model, but Christopher Tolkien's going to stop us from that. So I'll move on from that one. Some of the heroes I'd like to have a model for would be uh, the Kyrion that fought with Aeol, uh, Helm Hammerhand, and Calibrimbor I can think of off my top of my head. There's probably some more around as well, but those ones in particular I think would be good too. I think some of them were in the Legions of Middle-Earth book and they planned to release them at some point, but it didn't really get around to it. Sean comes back and says, if you could only play one scenario for the rest of time, what would it be and why? You can also put in there who'd you play against. Well, who would I play against? That's going to be a bit of a tricky one. This is probably the question that I thought about the most. And I'm going to go with the Battle of Bywater from the original Shire book using those Shire rules. I just find that scenario gives you so much value, so many different tactics. It can be a siege, it can be an assault, it can be a lot of different things. There's always action happening. The, the models die quite quickly. You've got some really good options there. You've got some heroes that are very small but quite opportunistic and powerful at the time. But the scenario is to keep them alive. We did an episode on this, and I think I gave it two thumbs up or something like that. It was just one of my favorites. Who would I play it with? I think I would play it with my friend Al, who is probably equal to me in the love of the lore for the Lord of the Rings. So every time we play a game, we're always just having such a good time with it. And it's a full scenario mode. It doesn't matter who wins. It's just really great fun. So, look, there's a lot of players I can play it with. And, yeah, I have. But... I think Al would definitely do a good job and do that justice. Okay, Scott asked me a difficult question here. He says, what are the known tactic names and how are they used in gameplay? I'm not one to name tactics. I know that uh, Travis on our podcast has named a lot of tactics. I know that some people do. And most of the time I say, what do you mean? And they explain it to me and go, oh, I do that anyway. So the ones that I do know, they say kiting a lot. And I think this came from a MMORPG. I'm not entirely sure. But that's basically where you stay out of the threat range of your enemy and hopefully you've got something that's threatening them. So things like throwing weapons do this really well. Say so throwing weapons against a goblin army or like a dragon with fly against cavalry. Anything where you can move so they can't reach you and you're still putting pressure on them is really good. So that's the kiting one. Now I've got tanking as well where you take something that's really hard to kill and put it in front of something. Uh, I first used this to great effect I think when, uh, once again, Travis was using... A Lindil and a Numenor, a Last Alliance army, and he was ripping through everyone's armies. And I think I lost to him first game of a tournament and then went and played the last game against him. And I think I pulled a draw, if I remember correctly, because I had dwarves and I just put my heroes into his heroes. So my heroes weren't going to kill them, but they just stood there the whole game. And then my troops cleaned up his troops. And it sort of was a light bulb moment there that one of the options, my normal option is, well, here's another name. They call the Halo tactic where I just avoid combat against, say, something big like a troll or Gilgalad. But this way, I just charged them and just kept charging them, charging them, charging them. And I think I had Dane Ironfoot and a King's Champion and just negated our heroes for the whole game. So that was a good one there, tanking and Halo. And then I've got one as well called Bolging, which is where you put Bolg in the combat next to the hero. You say you're going to use Might. Their hero panics. If they strike up, 
you go and attack someone else with your heroic combat. If they don't, you use your heroic combat to go in them, trap them with a bunch of hunter orcs and kill their hero. It's great fun. I've taken out some seriously good heroes doing that, Boromirs and Aragorns and other things. Bolg does an amazing job, and if you can get a trap with his piercing two-handed weapon, it is just amazing. So Bolging, we called that one, because when the Hobbit releases first came out, it was a tactic we stumbled upon, and it was just really effective. It's because he's got the fight seven, so he's going to outdoor most heroes without the strike, and if they strike, they're just throwing away might, so they might do it twice, and then they'll just give up, and then the next time you go and hit them. It's great fun. Joel Stuckey says, will Dwarf Cavalry ever be competitively viable or will they only be included for the laughs? Well, hopefully they get released, but Dwarves on Cavalry, yes, it will be effective. It might cost a few points, but any time you can add extra maneuverability and extra hitting power, that's great. That's the one thing the Dwarves can't really do at the moment is move and hit hard and fast. So absolutely, Cavalry will be amazing for them. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully they come out. Uh, I think they will. I really do. Jamie Weiner says, who should I take with Thorin's company at 1,000 points? So he's taking the, I think the basic 13 or 14 models from Thorin's company. I'm not sure if he's got Bilbo or not. But this is a basically an all-hero list where it relies on the heroes being in a small area and all using each other's abilities. Now he says, can I oh, suggest Radagast or 12 Erebor, 6 shield and spear, 5 shield and 1 shield and banner dwarves? I would go the Radagast. I think hopefully it's Radagast on the... The rabbits, because I think that would be a really good addition. It fits for the theme. It goes for the story really well, because it was part of the scenes in the movie like that. So it ticks my box for theme. And it adds something really nice to the army. It gives it some knockdown. It gives it some speed. It gives it some more healing ability. It gives us some cavalry panicking. It gives it terror. That um, awe of dismay, if you can get that off, you've got a terror-causing dwarf list, which is really, really powerful. So I would go the Radagast in that list. I think it'll still be difficult to play, but he's definitely my choice. Jeremy Entwistle, who's been on our podcast before on the very popular Goblin King episode, says, what do you really think of the players in the Western Suburbs? So he's part of the Western Suburbs group, which we've known for a long time. They've been on the scene for probably almost as long as us, and we've had some great games against those guys. Okay, um, I asked him if you really want me to answer this, and he did, so I'll answer honestly. There's some great players there. Thomas, Datto, and Will Datto have both been amazing players, won lots of tournaments over their time, and always provide a tough game. So I really rate those guys. Thomas also comes up with some fantastic conversion ideas. Sometimes he doesn't execute them as well as he would like, but he's got some really great ideas there, and I always like seeing his armies. Jeremy, who asked the question, is a nice guy, but pretty much hopeless. He uh, wants to learn how to paint, wants to learn how to play the game, and he's pretty much been wanting to do these things the last 10 years. So sorry, Jeremy. But keep trying, keep going. You'll do okay eventually. Tim, uh, also in a similar position. He likes to take armies that are unusual, likes to take spider armies and goblin armies and dragon armies, and for some reason does particularly badly with them. He's not the fantastic at tactics. And what I've found is he gets easily psyched out. So I've been playing some group games with him, and I can pretty much get Tim to do whatever I want against him. But he is a fantastic tournament organizer, a really nice guy, and he does some great events up at KJ's game so I do really appreciate Tim and he's got a Smaug model as well coming along and we hope he brings it to Masters and then we have Caleb as part of that group who I think has got a lot of potential there he learns quickly good painter always interested in the game he absolutely has a ball I think he's been one of our best guests on the podcast so far because he just seems to enjoy every moment so I really like them anyway those guys I really do like those guys I love playing up against them whenever I can so thanks a lot Jeremy for that question Jeremy also asks, how do I become a better player? 
Well, most people do that by practicing and learning over time. But Jeremy, unfortunately, that hasn't really worked for you. So I'm a bit of a loss at the moment. Practice some more, maybe. Oh, and we're getting towards the end here. Good. Henry Kerr asked me, could the Australian community beat the Great British Hobby League community in a game or a series of one versus ones? Could they? Of course they could. Will they? Yes, absolutely. We're on this podcast. They're over there. Why not? Absolutely, we'll beat them. And he says both on and off the tables. Now, I get the on the tables. I don't get off the tables. So on the floor or we're playing a different game or we're just beating them in a fist fight. I don't know. Either way, yes to all of them. We will. Absolutely. Andrew Hyju says again, uh, what are your in-game pet peeves that other hobbyists do? Okay, so this is good. Towards the end of the evening, ask me what makes me grumpy. The thing that I've been picking up on the most at the moment is when people, and this is my own group as well, and my own Green Dragon podcast fellows, they get the tape measure. They bring it out to six inches. They flash it down quickly on the table. They move it away. Then they pick up their model and move it. This isn't accurate. Come on, guys. Place the tape measure down. Move the model. I don't mind if then afterwards you're moving models to a less distance. That's fine. But at least give me an impression that you're measuring properly. Don't do this flick away and then hope and guess. You might be the most amazing guess, but I don't know that. Anything that looks like you might be cheating is a bad idea. Because when a game's going badly, people will just assume that you are. So another one that I've got is the the person who throws a die and then picks them up immediately and says a number. At least give the opponent the opportunity. Most of the time I don't check. Most of the time I can't be bothered. But if it looks like you're doing something dodgy, I'm going to naturally think you are. So that one annoys me a little bit. Other than that, probably the only thing is someone walking away from the table during a game without telling you why or asking you. That's a bit of a difficult one. It's just a bit of an etiquette thing that I find annoying sometimes because we're both giving up time to play and if you're just going to walk away at least let me know you're going to the toilet or can you go ask the tournament organizer or whatever most of the time it's okay but i'd like to know you just disappear and then i'm waiting by yourself those are the things there so mostly just etiquette things and and making sure it doesn't look like you're cheating i don't think people would cheat in the game i don't see why they would but it's it's a good idea to keep up the impression that you're not and now we have henry says what shampoo does gandalf use have you seen his hair he doesn't use shampoo Come on, Henry. Better question than that. And then Andrew finishes off our last question with Eowyn. Snog, marry, avoid. Why not all three in that order? I think as one of the few females in the Middle Earth books and movies, I think you'd definitely go for the snog, the marry, and then avoid so you can get some painting time. That's what I would do. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope to see you again soon. And remember, traps win games. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.